0: The subject of our message this morning is, you guessed it, Thanksgiving. Of course, not the holiday, but the act of giving thanks. That's what I want to speak to you about this morning. Basically, what is Thanksgiving? Thanksgiving is the act of expressing gratitude for some blessing that has been bestowed upon us. That's what Thanksgiving is. As it relates to us this morning, thanksgiving is the act of expressing gratitude for God for the blessings that He has bestowed upon us. The, to give thanks to God is very similar to offering praise. They're, they're very, there's an overlap there between giving thanks to God and, and offering our praises. We might say to praise God is to focus on who God is. What, and to thank God, excuse me, is to focus on what God has done for us. Praise is to focus on who God is, and thanksgiving is to focus on what God has done for us. That being said, we can hardly do one without the other. It's hard to be thankful to God and not, well, worship Him, praise Him. You can see the overlap. We worship through thanksgiving, and to give thanks is, well, to offer our worship, therefore what i'd like to suggest this morning in our time around god's word or in god's god's word is that thankfulness is the centerpiece of true worship thankfulness is the centerpiece of true worship and i'd like to explore this topic from psalm 138 so uh, If you haven't noticed, we're going to step away from the Gospel of John this morning, and we're going to look at a a particular psalm, and that's Psalm 138. And so, if you would, please find your way to Psalm 138 and stand, and we'll read this passage of Scripture this morning. Psalm 138, I don't know the page number in the Pew Bible, but uh, if you put your finger in the middle of the Bible and open it up, you should be able to find it from there. (laughs) Psalm 138, starting at verse 1 here of David I give you thanks O Lord with my whole heart before the gods I sing your praise I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness for you have exalted for you have exalted above all things your name and your word on the day I called you answered me my strength of soul you increased All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth, and they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is high, He regards the lowly, but the haughty He knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. Let me pray. God in heaven, we thank you for this morning, Lord. Please bless your word. Bless this gathering, Lord. Be with us as we look at this psalm and we Aim, Lord, to uh, be thankful. Help us, Lord, grow thankfulness in our heart. Use David's words here this morning, Lord, to give us a a heart of thankfulness for you and all you've done, Lord, for us. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Here's the big idea this morning in our text. It's this, three actions reveal the centerpiece of true worship three actions reveal the centerpiece of true worship. Like so many of the psalms, this psalm begins with a burst of excitement. David says, I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart, he says, before the gods I sing your praise. Here we see David expressing his adoration For Yahweh, and that's uh, the first action that reveals the centerpiece of true worship. It's adoration or devotion. Notice that this devotion that David has for his God is personal and it's genuine. He says, I give you thanks, I sing your praise. And in verse 2, I bow down. It's a personal thanksgiving, it's also very genuine. He offers such adoration, saying, with my whole heart, with my whole heart. David is devoted to deliberate praise of the Lord. This expression of thankfulness, therefore, is not half-baked. It's not half-hearted. It's spirited, and it's sensible. He gives thanks with his whole heart. If the heart is the governing center of a person, if It's the place where what we know, what we love, and what we choose come together. Well, then David's expression of thanksgiving comes from the totality of his inner being, the totality of his inner nature, the spring of his conscience. This is where this praise and this thanksgiving is coming from. John Owen said, as goes the heart, so goes the man. It is the helm of the ship. And where was David pointing the heart? Where was he pointing the ship of his heart? What course did David set? David set a course for Thanksgiving. He put his hand to the tiller and he pointed to the Isle of Thanksgiving, you might say. This expression of thanksgiving found here in Psalm 138 isn't an anomaly. It's not. The psalm isn't some diversion from David's normal practices. You've likely heard that there are different types of psalms. When you you study the the genre of psalms, one of the first things you, you kind of explore in that study is the different types, categories for the psalms. There are praise psalms. There are lament psalms. There are royal psalms. Talk about the kingship of David and of God. There are wisdom psalms. And of course, there are thanksgiving psalms that we have as well. Psalm 18, Psalm 30, 31, 32, 40, 65, 66, 92, 107, 116, 118, just to name a few. There's a host of these psalms. In which David is capturing the idea of gratitude, thankfulness. Some examples Psalm 30, verse 12. O Lord my God, I will give you thanks forever. Psalm 33, verse 2. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre, make melody to him with the harp of 10 strings. Psalm 92, 1. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O most holy high. Psalm 118, 1, Oh give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Psalm 145, 10, all the works shall give thanks to You, O Lord, for all Your saints shall bless You. These are just a, a couple verses. Like the pillars of an edifice, these psalms of thanksgiving carry the weight of worship. And Psalm 138 is no different. David continues. he says, "Before the gods, I sing your praise. Before the gods, I sing your praise." Now there's some debate here among commentators and people who study the Bible about what exactly is David referring to here. Who are these gods? Of course, it's got that little G, right? Well, what is he talking about? Psalm 90, 90, or excuse me, Psalm 29:1 says this, ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Well, that, that word there, heavenly beings, or those words heavenly beings in Psalm 29 is the same word that's used here as gods. They're Translated differently, but it's the same word in the Hebrew. This has led some to believe that David is speaking about singing God's praises before the angels. Others, believe that David is speaking about kings and judges. You might remember recently, we studied John chapter 10, verse 35, and in that passage, we found that the Old Testament calls ruler the rulers of Israel, gods. It's an expression used of, of the rulers in Israel, gods. And so, some have believed here that David is speaking about singing God's praises before kings and judges of his day. These are different options. Either one is plausible. I like a third option. I think it's the best one. I believe David here is speaking about singing God's praises before unbelievers and before their idols. That's my take on this. David is saying, even before pagan idols, before the gods, I will sing your praises. In this way, this psalm is, a, is an expression of adoration and a witness against the worthlessness of idols. In no way is David saying that these gods are real. (laughs) They really exist. He's only acknowledging they exist in the minds of their worshipers. Yet, David's words are a declaration that he stands face-to-face with the heathen world, face-to-face with anything and everything that people are willing to claim as their god and their sight... Their presence does not shake him from his confidence in God. He can declare before the gods of men that God is one, and He's worthy to be praised. To their face, He sings God's praises. Notice then how this action of personal and genuine thanksgiving has become a pathway to unshakable confidence. Thanksgiving is a, is a bulwark against the fear of men. I don't know if you're prone to struggle with the fear of man. If you are, like most of us, I know I am, pick up the tool of thanksgiving. That's the implement you need to wage war against the fear of man. It gives you confidence Ed Welch has written the best book I've ever read on the fear of man. It's called When People Are Big and God Is Small. Maybe you're familiar with that book. It's a terrific book. In that book, Welch gives three reasons or three aspects why we fear men. We fear people because they shame us. We fear people because they reject us. And we fear people because they threaten us. These are the main main reasons, Welch says, why we fear people why the fear of man grows in us. Maybe you're being shamed. Maybe you're being humiliated. Well, does the Lord not cover you? Have you ever been rejected? Of course you have. We've all been rejected. Well, friends, the Lord accepts you. Are you being threatened? Of course, if you're under physical harm, you should tell someone Should seek help there. But friends, the Lord protects you. Whether it's shame or rejection or threatening, the Lord covers us, He accepts us, He protects us. All these things are true. Give thanks to God that this is all true in your life if you believe in Him. Welch says, God actually showers us with Himself. He fills us with His love. All this is true about the God we serve. And we see the result of this, this thanksgiving in David's life. He stood face to face with the gods of this world, face to face with the the rebellious, the empty talkers, the deceivers, and their host of idols, and he's saying God's praises. He's saying about God's grace. He declared it from the mountaintops. David's adoration continues in verse 2. It says, He bows down, I bow down, he says, toward your holy temple. Give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness, for you, for you have exalted above all things your name and your word. The idea of bowing towards the temple here isn't some kind of religious practice that he's, that he's talking about, it's, it's really just an expression of his devotion. This isn't like some religions where you have to pray in a certain way. Otherwise, God's not going to hear your prayers. This is just the heart of David, that he's looking towards the temple, and he knows God's presence is there, and so he's directing his worship there. He's pointing his devotion towards God. He's pointing his heart, you might say, toward the things of God. In this verse, there's two very important words, common words that come up in the Hebrew. They're translated here in the ESV, steadfast love and faithfulness. These are words that describe our God, and you know these words. They're important words. They're words we underline in our Bible. Steadfast love is that Hebrew word chesed. Maybe you've heard that word before, chesed. This word is, again, translated commonly as steadfast love. Other translations prefer loving kindness constant love, unfailing love, or even loyal love, loyal love. For my take, I really like that that translation, loyal love. It strikes me as the best one. It leans into the covenant aspects of God's love. I think that's why I like it so much. The Lord is loyal in His love because He's in covenant with His people. He's made a promise to His people. And that, this is the kind of love that speaks to that promise, that God will keep His promises. Whether we speak of the Abrahamic, the Davidic, or the New Covenant, God's loyal love for His people is on display. Our God keeps His Word. David speaks also of faithfulness. This is maybe a word you're less familiar with, emmet, emmet, This word is often translated as faithfulness again, but it carries the idea of reliability and of truth. David is offering up his thankfulness for God's steadfast love and his faithfulness, for his loyal covenant love and his reliability. That God is reliable, that his word is bond, his word is truth. He can't break it, it's out of his character, it's out of his nature. It's not even possible for him to go against his word. He will keep his promises to his people. Finally, verse 2 there at the end, For you have exalted above all things your name and your word, David says. In other words, this is a a little bit hard to understand the way that, that phrase is put together. What he's saying is God has surpassed all his previous revelations. Listen to the NIV translation, for you have so exalted your solemn decree that it surpasses your fame. The Net Bible, for you have exalted your promise above the entire sky. Here's my own paraphrase, for you have magnified your word above anything we might have expected from your reputation. I'm convicted by David's words. They reveal how often I put guardrails on God. I I put a restriction on what God is able to do. I don't know if you ever do that. I think I'm very guilty of that. I put limits on God. God will go this far, but only that far. He won't go any further further. for some reason we like to accept a god with guardrails but that's not the god of the bible that's not the god of the bible god doesn't have limits his character the forgiveness the, the limit to forgiveness as god and according to god's character is i'll separate it your sin as far as the east is from the west <laughs> that's the only limit and what limit is that there is no limit I love these words from Paul. Think about what, what Paul, if, if, or ask the question, did, did Paul put limits on God? Listen to these words. Ephesians 3.20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. Romans 16.25, Now to him who is able to strengthen you. Him who is able. Don't miss that. He is able to strengthen you. Jude 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. He is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you, he says, blameless. God is able to do that. Amen? Thank you. 2 Corinthians 9, 8, and God is able, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things, He says, and at all times, you may abound in every good work. Why would I put limits on that God? God is saying, I have no limits. He is saying, I can do far more than you you ask or think. I I will strengthen you. I'm able to do that. I'm able to keep you from stumbling. I'm able to present you blameless. Amen. Amen. We're blameless. He is able to make all grace abound so that I, so that we will abound in every good work. This verse here, for you have exalted above all other things your name and your word, is, is really just David expressing the idea that God's outdone himself. You've really outdone yourself, Lord. What you've done in fulfilling your promise according to your word is far beyond what I've come to know, even expect from your loyal love and your faithfulness. Let us learn from that. Then in verse 3, he says, On the day I called, you answered me, my strength of soul you increased. We've already noted that David's thanksgiving here is very personal. David's not content with generalizing. He speaks about a particular day that he cried out to God, and God answered him. And so this psalm is intensely personal. David is personally qualified to offer this motto of thanksgiving. Based on his experience here of that steadfast love, that chesed and God's reliability, His faithfulness, His truth. And it was in that day that God answered him. He says, My strength of soul, you increased. My strength of soul, you increased. Another translation says it this way, You made me bold and energized me. That's the sense. The Lord strongly encouraged David He revitalized him. He charged his batteries is what happened. One commentator and Jewish commentator, Arthur Cohen, says, through God's response to his prayer, David became conscious of a power within him of which he had been before unaware. And this power, this man says, inspired him with a proud certainty that he must eventually triumph. I love that phrase, a proud certainty that we would triumph, that God would triumph. I don't know about you, but I'm looking for that. I'm looking for a proud certainty from God. Pause for a second and think about what thankfulness has done in the heart of David, just in these three verses. What has thankfulness done in his life? What has it done in his thinking? How has it changed him? How has it awakened him? What are the effects of it? It has toppled over the fear of man. And in its place, it's constructed an edifice of confidence. Charged his batteries, revitalized him. This is that confidence that Paul expressed in Philippians 1 6. And I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. Paul had that confidence, and he shared that confidence. As God's thankful people, we are a confident people. We ought to be. We don't hang our heads. And not because we have pride in self or in our accomplishments, but because we have pride in God and His accomplishments. That's what we boast in. I think we just sang it, didn't we? It was a perfect song to sing. That wasn't planned. Psalm 20, verse 7, you know it. Some boast in chariots and some in horses, but what do we boast in? The name of the Lord is what we boast in. He is our God. Paul says in Galatians 6, 14, but may it never be that I would boast, except in what? The cross of Jesus Christ. That's what we boast in. That's where we place our confidence. I hope you're beginning to see how thankfulness is the centerpiece of true worship. We give thanks and just look at all that comes with a thankful heart. The second action that reveals the centerpiece of true worship is anticipation. Anticipation. And this comes to us in verses 4 through 6. Look at verses 4 and 5. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord. For or when, I think it's probably better here, when they have heard the words of your mouth, and they shall sing of the ways of the Lord. For great is the glory of the Lord, David says. David is looking forward, he's anticipating the day that the kings of the earth will give thanks to the Lord. David expects that the kings of the earth will lead their people in the worship of Yahweh, of the one true God. Psalm 2 verse 10 offers a warning to the rulers of the earth to serve the Lord, otherwise His wrath will be quickly kindled. Maybe you remember that from Psalm 2. Psalm 72 Verses 10 and 11. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. Remember, from Israel's perspective, these are the bad guys up up north. (laughs) He's saying, those guys are going to worship you. They're going to bring you gifts. They're going to pay you homage. You remember the wise men, the birth of Jesus came and offered gifts. A little bit of symbolism there. Those wise men, they weren't kings, even though we sing We Three Kings, but they weren't actually kings. They were magi, but you get the point. People from other nations are coming to give gifts to the king. All that is a symbolism that the rulers of the earth will bow to him. There's a prophecy in Isaiah 49:7 that after his death, after the king is crucified killed, kings would pay Jesus homage Isaiah 49, 7 says, Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised. Remember, this king is a suffering servant. So the prophecy is saying, to one who was despised. He was abhorred abhorred by the nation. The servant of rulers, and then Isaiah says, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord, who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, what the Bible as a whole anticipates is a future day in which God's king will take the throne of David, will exercise his rule over the nations. The book of Amos says the, the fallen booth of David will be put back up. Right now it's toppled over, isn't it? But it'll be put back up and he'll sit on the throne and rule over the nations. David anticipates that future day here in Psalm 138. David says, All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth. The day will come in which the whole earth will hear the promises made to God's people. It's in that day that kings will offer thanksgiving and will sing of the ways of the Lord. Here's a particular promise given in verse 6. David says, For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly. But the haughty, it says, he knows from afar. There's something very tangible to give thanks for here in verse 6. Very tangible. Something to sing about here that God regards the lowly, he is a redeemer king. That's the kind of king He is. As Mary, the mother of Jesus, declared in her song, Luke chapter 1, verse 48, He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. And in Luke 1, 52, He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate, it says. Listen to Isaiah 57, 15, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhibits eternity inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. This is what that holy God says, who exists in eternity. I dwell on the high and holy place, and also with Him who is contrite and lowly of spirit. Is that amazing? That that God dwells with the lowly. One of the last verses in the book of Isaiah For these things my hand has made, God says, and so all these things can be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I look. This is the one to whom I turn my face, is what God is saying. Do you want God to turn His face to you? I hope you do. In a redemptive way, to turn His face to you. This is the one to whom I'll look, God says. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles... At my word. That is the one God looks upon. Do you think that God would hear you any better if you were standing on a mountain? That because you are lifted up, you'll be heard? Maybe that's what the Tower of Babel was about, right? Do you think that God can't hear you because you're in a valley? You're too low? For God to hear you? Augustine says, It is a wondrous thing. He both lives on high and draws near to the lowly. This is our God. This is the kind of king that we serve and we give thanks for. Yet, as we see here, to care for the lowly is to avenge the haughty, is to avenge the prideful. Which is in this verse as well. Don't overlook that Hebrew idiom. He knows them from afar. He knows them from afar. There's no distance that will hide the proud from His all seeing eye. Don't think that because God dwells in heaven, He can't discern your pride. God's so far away, He can't see what you're doing. God can see you from afar. Psalm 94 7 records the words of fools. Fools declare, The Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. He's too far away to see me. I don't hear his voice. Listen to the answer from the psalmist. Understand, O dullest of the people. Fools, when will you be wise? He who has planted the ear, does he not hear? He who has formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. If the Lord knows the very thoughts of man, if He knows your thoughts, He knows what's happening between the ears, There's no distance the proud can run from his justice. I suppose this truth is a great encouragement and it's a great warning. Those two things are true at the same time in this passage. The thought that God will bring justice to this world is tremendously encouraging. God will right all the wrongs of this world. He will bring justice to the fatherless, and He will plead the widow's case. He will do that. And yet, this is a warning to the proud. Proverbs 15, 25, The Lord tears down the house of the proud. Proverbs sixteen five: Everyone who is proud is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. C.S. Lewis compared pride to scratching an itch. He said, the pleasures of pride is like the pleasure of scratching. If there's an itch, one does want to scratch, but it's much, much nicer, he says, to have neither the itch nor the scratch. As long as we have the itch of self-regard, he says, we shall have the pleasure of self-approval. But the happiest moments are those when we forget our precious selves and neither have neither self-regard nor self self approval, but have everything else instead. It feels great to scratch an itch, but if we never had the itch and we never had the scra- scratch, never had to scratch it, it would be all the better. We think about ourselves; we need to f- be prideful. We need to fill ourselves deny ourselves, crucify ourselves. And as Lewis is saying, these are the happiest moments. We regard God. This is where joy begins in our heart. Lewis is teaching us that the happiest moments aren't found in pursuing our precious selves, but by humbling our precious selves. James 4.10, Humble yourself before the Lord and he will, what? Exalt you. What would it feel like for God to exalt you? What joy would exist in your heart? This indeed is the happiest of moments. Three actions reveal the centerpiece of true worship, adoration, anticipation, and finally, verses 7 and 8, assurance. Assurance. Look down at verses 7 and 8. David says, though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. Verse 7 reminds us of uh, Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. God was with David in his trials and his trouble And church, God is with us in the midst of our trouble. David wasn't immune to trouble, and I hate to say it, neither are we. Being God's anointed king, King David, didn't insulate him from trouble. And being his sons and daughters today don't insulate us from trouble. That being said, David had assurance, and so can we. David knew the difference between being self-assured and being God-assured. Being God-assured, being self-assured, I should say, is the language of pride. We spoke about that just a moment ago. Being God-assured is to speak the language of faith. And that's what's happening here. It really is the language of faith. The language of faith says, you preserve my life you stretch out your hand, you deliver us. And it says, the Lord will do this, which is what David is saying in these verses. It's the language of faith. He's assured because he's placed his faith in what God will do. And he had good reasons to place his faith in God. Verse 8 says, God's steadfast love, there's that word again, His loyal love, God's loyal love endures forever. And so He speaks the language of faith. He has a confession of confidence. And where did this assurance come from? This is my point, the whole point. Where did it all start? What does verse 1 say? With thankfulness, right? That's where it began. It all started with thankfulness. This assurance didn't just appear out of thin air. The expression of worship found in this psalm began with the words, I give you thanks, O Lord. I give you thanks, Yahweh, for your steadfast love, for your faithfulness, your reliability endures forever. Thankfulness is the centerpiece of true worship. It's the fuel That drives David's worship, and it's the fuel that drives ours. What is worship without thankfulness? Can you even imagine it? It wouldn't be worship, it'd be bogus, it'd be fake. Nobody worships with unthankfulness. Thankfulness is the first domino to worship. You, pu- you push that over, and everything else falls in place. I encourage you, take some time, maybe this afternoon, maybe this week, look at this psalm, read through it, work back through it, collect a list or make a li- list of the effects of thanksgiving in David's life. You could start with the three that I've given you. Adoration, um, anticipation, assurance, You could start with those, but list 10 reasons, 10 effects of thanksgiving. Put the list together, email it to me. How about that assignment? Come up with 10 things that David is thankful for, or the results of thankfulness in his life. I've given you a number of them already. Confidence, fear of God, fear of man was toppled over answered prayers, praise, strength of soul, boldness, all of these as a result of thanksgiving. Of course, as we leave this morning, I want to encourage you to give thanks, to be thankful. But if you would, maybe this morning, you might take some time as we, before we close and just consider giving thanks for, for something or someone that you can't ever giving, you don't remember giving thanks for before something new. It's easy to give thanks for our family, for our job, for our church. We we oftentimes express gratitude for those things, but maybe we need to stretch ourselves a little bit and consider afresh the goodness of God and give thanks specifically for something we've never given Him thanks for. Think about your past experiences Is there a specific favor or some particular blessing decades ago that you've never truly thanked God for? Maybe something will come to mind. Maybe it'll lead to a phone call, a text message, some expression of thanksgiving to your God or to another. Do you recall ever thanking God for the person who first told you about Jesus Do you recall thanking God specifically for your first Bible? Maybe the story about how you got it. Maybe a Sunday school teacher or a VBS teacher, camp counselor. Maybe it's just someone who encouraged you early in your faith, pastor, friend. First Thessalonians five eighteen says, "In everything." In everything, give thanks. This verse inspired John Wesley to thank God that he broke only his arm in an accident and not his head. If it's true that we are to give thanks in everything, then in every situation, in every situation, we can discover thanksgiving. even the death of a loved one, reminds us of the knowledge of eternal life. As hard as that is. Look down at the very last verse here of the psalm, actually the last sentence of it. David says, Do not forsake the work of your hands. Do not forsake the work of your hands. It's a final prayer. Lord, do not fail to carry forward to completion The mighty deeds you have started for your people. Do not withdraw your hand. Although these words are offered as a plea, they are really a promise, aren't they? They come to us as a promise. God will not withdraw His hand. Philippians 1, 6 again, And I am sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God will fulfill those promises in your life. He will complete that work He began. God will not forsake the work of His hands. He will bring His work in this world, in this church, and in your life to completion. It's a promise. I'm going to ask you to stand before we close. We are going to sing one more time, but I just want to stand and read a prayer from the Valley of Vision as we close. I'm asking you to stand because... In standing, we're reminded that there's an action to take. Certainly, we give thanks, we have a knowledge, but there's an action, there's something to do, to give, to actually, practically give thanks. And so, standing reminds us that we have to put feet under this, we have to go and we have to give thanks. And I should say, I know you're standing, but if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, if if you've never come into contact with Jesus, if He's never looked upon you. Friends, today's the day of salvation. You can give thanks like you've never given thanks before. If you would turn to Him, repent of your sins, and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You realize the God who created you, the God in heaven, stooped. He condescended by sending His Son, Jesus, to this earth who lived a perfect, sinless life. And all he demands of you to come into relationship with that God, the God of your creator, is that you believe. That's all. He doesn't say jump through a bunch of hoops, do a bunch of works. You know the verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, his unique son, that whoever does what? Believes shall not perish, which means burn in hell shall not perish, but have eternal life. Maybe today you would give thanks like you've never given thanks before. Let's pray. Oh God, you are fairest, greatest, first of all objects. Our hearts admire, adore, and love you. For our little vessel, our body, is as full as it can be. And we would pour out all that fullness before you in ceaseless flow. When I think upon and converse with you, 10,000 delightful thoughts spring up. 10,000 sources of pleasure are unsealed. 10,000 refreshing joys spread over our hearts, crowding into every moment of happiness. We bless you for the soul that you've created, for adorning it, sanctifying it, though it is fixed in barren soil, and we feel that every day. We are thankful for the body that you have given us, for preserving its strength and vigor, for providing senses to enjoy delights. And although we might have some restriction, we thank you for the ease and freedom of our limbs, for hands and eyes and ears that do your bidding, for the royal bounty providing our daily support, We thank you for a full table and overflowing cup, for appetite, for taste, for sweetness, for social joys of relatives and friends, for the ability to serve others. We thank you for a heart that feels sorrows and necessities, for a mind to care for our fellow men, for opportunities of spreading spreading happiness around. We thank you for loved ones and the joys of heaven for our own expectation of seeing you clearly. We love you, Lord, above the power of language to express, for thou, for what you are to your creatures. Increase our love, Lord. Increase our love with thanksgiving, O God, through time and eternity. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.